it's something I really do love about our church. It's something that we really emphasize strongly is that we truly are a family here. We're a, a community of faith that genuinely sees one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and my prayer is that we would continue to walk in that, um, that we would continue to move in that direction, to care for one another, to uphold one another's needs. And um, there's something in this text that really kind of deals with that. We're going to get to it in a little bit because there's more to to living as a family than just bearing one another's needs. There's other things involved. We're going to actually get to that in a few minutes. Um, So today, we're talking about the woman caught in adultery. Um, So happy Mother's Day. (laughs) Maybe I have to do a better job when mapping out my sermons, but this is where we find ourselves this morning. So we press on. Now, while adultery is a significant part of this passage, the bigger picture that we're going to be focusing on is one of grace, compassion, and the forgiveness we have in Christ. Grace, compassion, and the forgiveness we have in Christ. At the same time, similar to what we talked about last week, the words and actions of Jesus are going to confront and, by God's grace, challenge us in how we engage with the brokenness of the world around us and the brokenness within ourselves. What we, and and by we, I'm referring to those of us who call ourselves Christians, what we need to constantly remind ourselves of is that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So if that's why Jesus was sent, and we are to identify with him as the body of Christ, then we need to embody the same posture as we move toward those who have been labeled sinner. Also, similar to what we talked about last week, this story is another example of the older and younger brothers portrayed in the parable of the prodigal son. I think often what we do in passages like this is we very quickly identify with the the victim of of the scenario. But so often, I think we find ourselves in a position of being the oppressor in a situation like this. And so that's where we have to be careful. We're very quick to jump and identify with the one who needs the grace of of forgiveness and and, and safety when when maybe we're the ones who are are actually the, the oppressor in the situation. So bearing that in mind, my prayer is that both of us The younger and older brothers here this morning, we got both of them in our midst, we do. And sometimes we we embody both, even as, as as a single person, that we would be challenged to see and embrace the beauty and wonder of God's love by receiving his kindness, a kindness that leads us into a life of repentance and faithfulness. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 7, verse 53, and we'll be working our way through chapter 8, verse 11 this morning. Now, before we jump in, there are a few preliminary items that we need to talk about regarding this passage. How many of you have a note in your Bibles following 752? Just raise your hand if you have a note in your Bible. All right. What does it say? Someone just shout it out. Say it again, Sue. Yes. The earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. How many have that in their Bibles? or a footnote at the bottom of your Bible. What that means is that the text found in our passage is probably not original to John's gospel. It's 
probably not original to John's gospel. And the reason why this is most likely the case, and we're going to do a little bit of what's called, what scholars call textual criticism. You guys excited for that? Text criticism. Yeah, rock on, right? Yeah. The reason why this is most likely the case is because these verses are present in most of the medieval Greek manuscripts, but they're absent from virtually all early Greek manuscripts of John dated before the 5th century. To further complicate things, all the earliest church fathers omit this passage when commenting on John. All of them. No Eastern church father cites this passage before the 10th century when dealing with this gospel. The passage itself actually shows up in three different places throughout church history. Um, after John 7, 3, after John 7, 44, after John 21, 25, and in a manuscript of Luke following chapter 21, verse 38. And finally, its style and vocabulary is unlike anything else we find in John's gospel. All that to say, most scholars agree that the passage before us is not an authentic part of John's gospel. At the same time, those scholars mostly agree that there is little reason to doubt that the event occurred. It has Jesus written all over it. In other words, what we have before us is historically reliable, even if it might not belong in the canon of Scripture. Right? You guys tracking with me so far? What is also important to note is that there's nothing about this passage that is contrary to the apostolic witness contained in our New Testament. In other words, this historically reliable event fits without strain into the life, work, and teachings of Christ and the writings of the New Testament. Now, for some of us, this sort of discussion might make us nervous. Maybe some of you are nervous right now. Maybe some of you are like, what is going on? What's happening? Maybe some of you have questions like, are there other parts of the Bible like this? Or does this sort of thing affect how we understand the inspiration and authority of the Bible? Can I trust the Bible I'm holding in my hands? And the answer to all those questions is yes. And now we need to get a little technical for a few minutes to explain what I mean, why yes is the answer to all those questions. Yes, there are other parts of the Bible like this. They're called variants. Right? They're called variants, and there are as many as 400,000 textual variants and as little as 200,000 in the New Testament. And of that enormous number, there are only two that involve more than one or two verses. This one and Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. Those 200,000 to 400,000 variants have been found in Greek manuscripts along with Latin, Coptic, Syriac, etc. And according to one source, this averages out to about 16 variants per manuscript. You get nervous? I want you to get nervous. I want some disequilibrium here. I'm a teacher at heart. At this point, the numbers probably sound concerning. Because I might be using the word variant, but a lot of us might be hearing another word, that word mistake. 200,000 to 400,000 mistakes. But there's really good news. You want to hear the good news? Because I just told you a whole bunch of bad news, right? A whole bunch of scary news, a whole bunch of like, oh my gosh, what are we supposed to do? Um, here's the good news. And, and it's news that speaks to the faithfulness of our God. Of those 200,000 to 400,000 variants, the majority of them are spelling differences, 
the use or non-use of an article, words like the or an, a different conjunction or a slight variation in sentence structure. Scholars also agree that only about 1,500 warrant inclusion in the textual footnotes of the Greek New Testament. And so readers can see for themselves that very few affect significant issues of meaning and most importantly, no doctrine or ethical teaching of Christianity depends solely on one or more of these disputed texts. Which means that bottom line, we can 100% trust the Bibles we hold in our hands or scroll through on our phones. And that while we don't possess the original writings, because we don't have any original, they're called autographs. We don't have any of the original, we have copies. The consistency we see throughout Scripture and the history of hand-copied manuscripts means that we have access to the inspired and authoritative Word of God. We have access to it. We have access to it. The late R.C. Sproul says it like this, and I have a, a slide for this. If someone put a bomb in the National Institute of Standards and Technology in Washington and blew up our official yardstick there would still be enough accurate yardsticks and copies to allow us to reconstruct what a yard is. And we can do it with indiscernible variation. The same holds true for the text of Scripture. So that's good news. That's good news. So what's the point? God has faithfully preserved his word, and we have access to it because of the meticulous work of the saints throughout the course of church history. That's actually really good news. And, 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 and while those, like, those numbers sound crazy, 400,000 variants, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? 400,000 mistakes. If someone brings that up, remember, most of them are spelling errors. And as one scholar said, even people in the ancient world had a hard time with spelling, right? And so that's, that's helpful for us. To understand. And so that brings us to our passage. My goal this morning is to walk us through the text, to point out the truths that this passage teaches, and show how these truths are actually found all over our Bibles and in the life and teaching of Jesus. So we don't necessarily need to rely on John chapter 7, verses 53 through 8, 11, even though it is a historically reliable passage, and it might even be a part of inspired scripture but it certainly has been seen as such throughout the course of a good portion of church history. And so therefore, we are going to, to look at it, but we're also going to see how the rest of Scripture supports what it's teaching. Does that make sense? We feel good? Anyone nervous and being like, John, you're crazy, I can't believe, and great. If you do, maybe you'll tell me later. Anyway, so let's jump in. Starting in verse 53, which most of your Bibles probably have it all, um, under John chapter 8. It says this, as they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down, and he taught them. So it's hard to say who they is referring to. Some think it might be the religious leaders from the previous passage. Maybe it's Jesus's disciples. The point is that Jesus headed to the Mount of Olives, maybe to sleep for the night, maybe to spend time with his heavenly father. We're not really sure. It doesn't exactly tell us what's going on there. And then it says that Jesus was up early, which is pretty typical of Jesus. And he was teaching at the temple. 
Now, it seems that there's a significant crowd gathered around him. Notice that it says, all the people came to him. He's probably teaching in the outer court, which is where most teachers would gather their students for instruction in the law. That's what took place in that particular area. And then the scribes and the Pharisees show up. Who are these people? The scribes were recognized as students and teachers of the law of Moses. And in Jesus' day, they actually took on the role of, of lawyer, of ethicist, a theologian, and even a legal expert. And most of them were Pharisees by conviction, which simply meant that they were religious conservatives. That's what all that means. Now, notice what these ethicists and theologians do. They bring this woman to him who had been caught in adultery, and they place her in the midst. Let's take a look here. It says in verse 3, The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and they placed her in the midst. Now, remember, Jesus is most likely teaching a large group of people. And this group of scribes and Pharisees, they drag this woman and place her into the middle of the crowd. Now try to imagine the scene. It's early in the morning. And the passage actually says in the next verse that the woman was caught in the act of adultery. Like while it was happening. Okay? We can only imagine what she looks like at this moment. Probably disheveled. Probably scared most likely overwhelmed. And Jesus is in the middle of teaching, which makes this interruption feel, feel very abrupt. It would be like if someone was dragged into the middle of our sanctuary while I was preaching and placed right there, all eyes would be on that situation. Those of you in the back would probably stand up to see what was going on. A lot of us would be put off by her appearance, especially after hearing the accusation. And then after hearing the words of verse 5, which I'll read to you, starting in verse 4, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what, what do you say? If it were happening here, all eyes would be on me. Like, what are you going to do, John? Uh, and, I, and now if it were me, and if anyone knows me, I'd be like, oh, dude, oh, I don't. I got to go. I got to go. I got things to take care of. Um, now, because human nature hasn't changed much in the past 2,000 years, all eyes were most likely on Jesus. What's he going to do? A couple of things to observe. The scribes and the Pharisees, they're right. They are accurate. Stoning is the Old Testament prescribed punishment for an engaged or betrothed person who is sexually unfaithful to their fiancé. But the punishment is prescribed for both sexual partners. Now, the problem, if you haven't noticed, there's only one person on trial here. The question that keeps hitting me is, how on earth did they catch her in the act of adultery? It seems awfully convenient, possibly a setup. But this all clears up very quickly. Look at what it says in verse 6. This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Now, this is pretty standard behavior for Jesus' opponents. In Mark chapter 3, verse 2, and Luke chapter 6, verse 7, the Pharisees watched Jesus to see if he would heal a man on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. 
Later on in Mark, Mark chapter 10, the Pharisees go to Jesus to test him again by asking him his opinion on divorce. Their goal is to entrap him, to make him say or do something that will either discredit or incriminate him. I can't stress this enough. We can't be like these guys. We can't be like these guys. Something that we need to understand about this religious group of people is that they know their Bibles. Like they know their Bibles better than anyone in this room. This group of scribes and Pharisees, they know their Bibles. They are thoroughly versed in the scriptures to the point that they probably have enormous portions memorized. Now, I'm not saying this is a bad thing. You should know your Bibles. You should read your Bibles. You should study your Bibles. But just because somebody knows their Bible, it doesn't mean they are spiritually mature. Okay? I want to say that again. Just because somebody knows their Bible, it does not mean they are spiritually mature. That is a massively important fact that we need to hear those of us who know our Bibles really well, and those of us who have been on the receiving end of those who know their Bible really well. Bible knowledge does not equal spiritual maturity. In fact, the Apostle Paul makes this pretty clear when he says in 1 Corinthians 13 too, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge but have not love, I am nothing. And what is clear about the events unfolding before us is that these guys, they don't have any love. Like, they are absent of love. And while this woman is most likely guilty, there is not a single ounce of compassion, mercy, grace, or love being displayed. And the thing that is fueling them, because the reality is they couldn't care less about this woman. They couldn't care less about this woman. And the reason why we know that is because the text tells us why they came, to test Jesus, to trap Jesus, to get him in a prickly situation that he won't be able to get out of. And why? Because they hate him. They hate him. Remember what Jesus said just a few verses earlier. The world hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. And what we saw last week is that Jesus, without hesitation, he's lumped all these guys into the category of the world. And so we know that these guys are not particularly fond of Jesus. They know they don't like that he says things like your sins are forgiven. They know that we don't like that he's gathering all these fat followers. They know, we know this stuff about them. Notice what happens next. Verse 6b, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, now, what he wrote on the ground in the sand is unknown. We have no idea. There's been all sorts of hypotheses about what that might have been. I lean toward the idea that he was stalling. I lean toward the idea that he was stalling. We have to remember, he's human. And so this actually highlights his humanity. Like, he's thinking about this for a, situ for a second. He's trying to wrap his mind. He's like, okay, how does... What's going on here? How, how can I operate? How can I function here? Maybe he's having a conversation with his father, because if you remember that Jesus only does what the father tells him to do. And so maybe he's in conversation with his father. I heard one pastor say that maybe he was taking a second to search their hearts. 
It seems that there was a little bit of time that transpired because the text also says that they continued to ask him. Like, so he's on the ground, he's, he's doing his thing, and they're like, what do you say, Jesus? Come on, come on, Jesus. Like, like similar to when, when you tell your child, like, hey, we're going to do that later, and then they keep asking over and over and over and over and over again. That's what it, like, they're acting like children. They're acting like children. And I love children, but adults should not act like children. And that's what's, that's what's happening here. They were growing impatient. But maybe, maybe that's exactly what Jesus wanted them to do. Maybe he wanted them to sweat because he knew something about them. Maybe he knew that there was some guilt in them. Like when you stare at your child after asking them who ate the last cookie and you just wait. You just wait for them to incriminate themselves. Look at what he says in verse 7b, the second half of verse 7. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. So you see, Jesus knows the Bible too. He references both Deuteronomy 13.9 and 17.7, passages that teach that the witnesses of a crime must be the first to throw the stones, and, and they must not be participants in the crime itself. Now, what this doesn't mean, this is important, this doesn't mean that one must be morally perfect to hold others accountable for their sin. But it does mean that you probably shouldn't be a participant in the very thing you're trying to punish. This could mean a few things. It could mean that Jesus knew that this entire thing was a setup and that the scribes and Pharisees were actually involved in it. It could also mean that the man involved was with this, was with this woman, was standing right there in the group, maybe. could mean both. Whatever the case, after Jesus speaks those words and kneels down again, the text says they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. One by one, they leave. And I think it's interesting that it's the older ones who walk away first, because maybe the older ones who've, who've been around the block for a little bit kind of recognize, like, oh, Maybe there's a smidgen amount of wisdom that they still possess. And they, maybe they're looking at the younger guys be like, guys, like, he's got us. He's got us. Whereas, like, young dudes, right, they're like, they're like no, let's go, let's fight, let's get, like, and, and, and the older ones are like, I've been in some fights before. We've lost. We've lost. Now, some argue that, that maybe, maybe they, they felt that, like, a conviction of sin I have a hard time believing that just based on the context. It doesn't seem, maybe that is. But I, I venture to say they know they've been beat. And the older ones catch the message a lot more quickly than the younger ones. And so, so this is quite a shift, right? Because when the scribes and Pharisees barged in and interrupted Jesus' teaching, they had all the confidence in the world. They had all the confidence in the world. They finally had Jesus where they wanted him. He could either deny the law of Moses or he could deny this whole compassion and mercy thing he'd been practicing and preaching for the last couple of years. Either way, he would have been either discredited or he would have been held accountable by Rome if he chose to have her stoned, right? If he said, yes, yeah, stoner, let's get it done, right? Not only would he have not been the compassionate and merciful individual that he claimed and practiced throughout his ministry, but he'd also be stepping on the toes of Rome. He can't, no one can decide to, to execute a person except the powers that be, which were Rome. And so the Pharisees and the scribes, they have him right where they want him. 
They're like, finally, we got it. And that's why they step into this situation with so much confidence. That's why they're so bold. And I imagine that the first ones to leave were the older ones. In my brain, I can't help but imagine it's the younger ones who are like leading the march, right? Because again, young men, we tend, I'm like, I'm not as young as I once was, but I'm still, I'm somewhat young. And and there's a little bit of moxie and, and hubris that young men have. Either way, Either way, they thought, they got him. Finally, we got this guy. But Jesus is amazing, right? Jesus is unbelievable. As we read through the Gospels, and I would so encourage you, read through the Gospels. Right, as evangelicals, we love Paul. We love Paul. We read Paul like it's going out of style. Most of our favorite verses come from the epistles. Read the Gospels. Watch how Jesus interacts. Watch how he speaks. Learn his ways. Jesus sees a third option. Jesus sees a third option. An option that forces the accusers to wrestle with their own darkness, their own sin. Remember what Jesus said in our passage from last week. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. And what is right judgment. Turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to Matthew chapter 7. It's toward the beginning of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, and I might have a slide for this. Now, Matthew, um, now Jesus is in the midst of what is referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. This is his teaching on what life in the kingdom looks like. And he says this in chapter 7, verse 1. He says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye, you hypocrite? First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your eye brother's eye. Now there's some comedy going on here because, because the, the, the visual that we're supposed to get is a guy that has a log in his eye. Right? That's not normal. That's not something that you would see every day. Right? That's the visual that's trying to be communicated and this person with the log in their eye is, is doing everything they can and, and, and you can imagine if there's a log in your eye you might not see as clearly as you would without a log in your eye and, and, and this individual is trying to get a speck like something small, like if you have something in your eye and you're kind of like, you know, and you go to the water or like in, in high school you had the, 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 the eye wash station in the science room that, that some kids would get in trouble with, um, right? And, and that's how, no, no one did that? Um, just me, sorry, Brian. I was the guy, I'm sorry. Um, but, but the point is, is, it's a ridiculous scenario, right? Now, a couple things to note about that passage. Jesus isn't saying that we shouldn't hold one another accountable for sin. Nobody's saying Right, because some people read that passage and be like, hey, only God can judge me, right? It's like, well, kind of, but no, like, like, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that how we relate to one another, particularly when it comes to those caught in sin or struggling in sin, it needs to take into account, this is important, this is where we need to like really listen, and needs to take into account that we also struggle 
we also struggle. And that without the grace of God and the indwelling presence of the Spirit, and sometimes even with those things, we are capable of the same things, and chances are we are guilty and have been guilty of those same things. One commentator says it like this, an awareness of our own faults will make us more charitable in the judgment of others. An awareness of our own faults will make us more charitable in the judgment of others. That's important to wrestle with. That's important to wrestle with because so much of the harm that is done at the hands or by the hands of of religious people is harm that is fueled by this idea that they believe they've done nothing wrong. And, And I venture to say every single one of us in this room, myself included, have been in the same sort of boat as those scribes and Pharisees where you see something so horrific that all you do is heap judgment and condemnation upon that particular event or sin or whatever without recognizing that we too are guilty. That we too are guilty. That's really important. Jesus talks about this all the time. And see, the struggle for so many of us is to take that third option, the option that recognizes that our sin played just as much of a role in nailing Jesus to the cross as those we would label as some of the worst offenders. Catch that? That our sin played just as much of a role in nailing Jesus to the cross as those we would label as some of the worst offenders. Now, I'm reminded of the story from Luke chapter 7. Jesus had been invited to eat at a Pharisee's home. This Pharisee's name was Simon. And while they were there, a woman whom the text labels as a sinner showed up. Now, we don't know what kind of sin she was involved in. Some people hypothesize that maybe she was a prostitute. We really don't know. Maybe, just like the group of scribes and Pharisees, here in John 7, maybe she barged in. Jesus is having dinner. It says, the, the text says that they were seated at table. They were having a meal. They were talking. And all of a sudden, this, women sh- this woman shows up. Now, how households were in the ancient world, like there weren't too many locked doors. Everything was pretty public. You were able to kind of walk in and out of, of people's homes. Beggars would come into people's homes. Like that's how the ancient world functioned. And so this woman, she barges in. Only upon entering, she doesn't bring with her accusations and demands, but rather gratitude, humility, and sorrow over her own sin. I actually want to go to the passage. It's in, it's in Luke chapter 7 because it's, it's so beautiful. It says, one of the Pharisees, in verse 36 of chapter 7, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, so they're sitting down to eat. He brought an an alabaster, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet 
with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. There's there's some humility. Like, uh, humility is so positive sounding. She looks like a fool, right? It it is a positive thing, but she's acting like a fool here. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, like this guy, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. She's a sinner. And Jesus answered him. Yes, check, like, check that out. The Pharisee says to himself, right, maybe he's thinking or maybe he's speaking quietly, and Jesus answered him. Right? It's like, whoa, whoa, what? That's, a, that's, that's just a cool little note to note. And Jesus answered him, said to him, Simon, I, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender, I, I didn't plan on reading this whole thing, but I think it's worth it. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. That makes sense, right? If someone forgives you like a dollar and says like, hey, don't worry about that dollar, you're like, oh, cool, I'll get you next time. Or if someone says like, hey, I know like the mortgage you owe, don't worry about it. It's like, whoa, that feels like a bigger deal. The one whom, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt, verse 43. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven because she loved much, but he who is forgiven loves little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table, they said, and they began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I tell you her sins which are many, are forgiven. Therefore, she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Until we recognize what what we've been forgiven of and saved from, we will be incapable of judging rightly, and we will be unable to love the broken. But the more heartbreaking thing more than both of those, is that if we have not been able to recognize what we've been forgiven of and saved from, we will be incapable of loving God and basking in the glory of his grace and forgiveness. We won't be able to do it. This woman comes in, barges in, with gratitude, humility, and sorrow over her sin, which when mixed together, they make up the ingredients of that spirit and truth worship we read about in John 4. Gratitude, humility, and sorrow for sin, those are the ingredients for worship. Those are the ingredients that enable us to come before a holy God And love him with all of our heart, with all of our strength. And to love our neighbor as ourself. If we don't have those things, then we don't believe we actually need a Savior. We might pay lip service to a Savior, 
but we don't actually believe it. And therefore, what ends up happening is that we look at all the sinners that we come in contact with, and we're like that, we're like that, that Pharisee who, who looks over at, at, at the sinner and says, I'm so glad I'm not like her. I'm so glad I'm not like that guy. Right? And we've done that. We've done it. We all do it. I've been preaching to myself all week about this. And this has been a weird week for me. Like just, you know, to be honest, like one of those weeks where I've kind of like been wrestling in my own head and in my own heart and like, and having to, to wrestle through this passage, like, like we need to wrap our minds around this. That until we recognize that we are sinners and that our sin is just as much responsible for nailing Jesus to the cross, if we don't get that, we can't love God. We can't love God. That's, that's just... That's what, that's what Jesus teaches. And we don't just see it in, in this passage that may or may not be included in the canon, right? We see it all over the Bible. And that's why they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. Because those who claimed to speak on behalf of God had no real desire or love for him. They couldn't. Because in their hearts and minds, they didn't believe that they actually needed him. That's what pride does. That's what this belief of superiority does. It actually makes us believe that we don't need God. And we'll never actually articulate that out loud. But, but you've heard it like we, we tell our kids, actions speak louder than words. How do we engage the broken? How do we engage sinners? How do we engage the world that is struggling right now? Is it hatred? Is it condemnation? Or is it compassion? Is it heartbreak? Is it love? Our hearts should be aching for what we see taking place in the world right now. Aching. Not not condemning because Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world. He came into the world so that through him the world might be saved. It's not why he came. And so therefore, it's not how we should go. If it's not how he came and he sends us, then we should be going the way he came. Because guess what? Like, I know we'll always cite those verses. Oh, but when Jesus comes back, he's coming back like guns blazing, which I don't even, like, we have to, like, really do some digging in that. But, like, guess what? No one in this room has been resurrected yet. And so if we're following the pattern of Jesus, which we're called to do, we've yet to arrive at resurrection. We are going to return with Christ to, to judge. That's true. The Bible talks about that. But that's... That's somewhere out there. That's not, that's not here. That's, the way he came is the way he calls us to go. That's just what our Bible teaches us. And then after they went away, Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. To quickly situate ourselves, it's very possible and even probable that the initial crowd, the ones whom Jesus was teaching, that they were still there. Very possible. But the accusers had vanished. 
Now, Jesus is still kneeling on the ground, right? Because he stood up at one point, and he's kneeling again. There's a calmness to how Jesus approaches these sorts of situations. Just to kind of, like, a little sidebar for a moment. Situations that would leave most of our hearts pounding. He's very calm. He's thinking. He's probably praying. But then the text says that Jesus stood up. This is the second time he stands up. The first time was to address the accusers, and now he addresses the accused. And look at what he says. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? In other words, was there not one among them righteous enough to pronounce and carry out a death sentence over you? Her response, I guess not. And then Jesus says this. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. Now, knowing what we know about who Jesus is, we can understand this response like this. I am righteous enough to pronounce and carry out a death sentence over you. But I'm not going to. Instead, the death sentence that you deserve, in just a short while, I'm going to take it upon myself. What you need to understand is that your sin, it does matter. It does matter. And while I'm willing to forgive you, that forgiveness has a cost. Because forgiveness always has a cost. Even in our interpersonal relationships, forgiveness always has a cost. It's why when, when you've been sinned against in, in, in a grievous sort of way, a simple I'm sorry, you know, oh, okay, yeah, I, I forgive you, but that I might need a little time. Right? I might need a little time. Because, because there needs to be you know, faithfulness in, in keeping with repentance, right? Like there needs to be, like, like there needs to be a life lived that demonstrates like, oh, okay. Like when you said that and I believed you, even though I might not have trusted you, like you, you meant it. Right? And so, so forgiveness at the horizontal level, right? Sometimes it takes time. And that's actually okay to, to you know, to sidebar again. Um, and so if, if like, if you've been in a situation where you have been just treated horrifically and, and someone says to you, well, I, I asked for your forgiveness, so you need to... It's like, you're allowed to say, yeah, yeah, no, I forgive you, but I need some time. You're allowed to say that. And if someone says you're not allowed to say that because Jesus forgives me, it's like, okay, cool, 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 but like, I'm, I need some time. That's allowed. But getting back to, to this, right, how we might understand this is is what we need to understand is that that sin, it does matter. And while Jesus might be willing to forgive us, that forgiveness has a cost. And the cost is the body and blood of Christ broken and shed for us so that we can be changed and move forward in a life of self-sacrificial love for both God and every single person and community we come in contact with. See, Redeemer Fellowship what we have to wrap our minds around, we are the woman caught in adultery. We're also the scribes and the Pharisees who dragged her out into the middle of the temple courts. 
We're the sinful woman from Luke 7, and we are also the Pharisee passing judgment upon her. We are both the older and younger brother in the parable of the prodigal son. And we are the religious leaders, Pilate, and the crowds of people demanding that our Lord be crucified instead of a known criminal. And we will remain all of those people unless we allow the grace, mercy, and love of God to shine a light into all of that darkness that we have. Every bit of it has to be brought into the light. Every lustful thought, every word of judgment we speak against those we think of as less than, every mocking word we utter against our enemies, political, ideological, whatever, every ounce of prejudice or racism that we harbor against those who aren't like us, every harsh word we speak to our spouses, our children, our co-workers, all of the weapons we borrow and steal from the enemy to fight what we might consider a holy war against culture, all of it. God wants all of it. And what we'll find when we lay ourselves naked before God, disheveled, scared, overwhelmed, just like this woman, this guilty woman, the words that Jesus will speak over us are, neither do I condemn you. Why? Because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But there are three key words in that verse that we all love to quote from Romans 8. There is no common condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Another way to say that might be, go and from now on, sin no more. My old pastor says it like this, salvation is followed by discipleship. Salvation is followed by discipleship. What Jesus, and this is beautiful, this is so beautiful, what Jesus is communicating to this woman is that who she was is no longer who she is. Who she was is no longer who she is. She used to be an adulteress, but now she's forgiven. She used to be a saint, a sinner, but now she's a saint. She used to be an orphan, but now she's an adopted child of God. Her story has been rewritten and redeemed, and now she can finally live the life she was always meant to live in fellowship with God, loving him and loving neighbor. This is not a call to perfection. It can't be, because we, we can't manage that. That's, that's not something we're able to do. But rather, it is a call to a spirit-produced, grace-filled, and blood-bought faithfulness. And part of that faithfulness is recognizing that the old man still shows up sometimes. The old man still shows up sometimes. Part of that faithfulness is continuing to confess and repent of our sin. And what happens when we do that? What happens when we do that, especially in a community of faith that isn't scared to speak God's forgiveness over people, even when we hear about those really bad sins? like the really bad ones, and everyone's got a, 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 like a slideshow going on in their head of all the really bad sins, right, a list. What happens is that we are freed from playing a game called Christianity 
and we start having genuine encounters with Almighty God. Right? We, we talked about earlier that we're a family, a community of faith, where we uphold one another in times of, of, of trial, in times of pain, in tri- times of, of, of whatever, tribulation. And, and that is so beautiful. We need to be that family. We need to be that family. We also need to be the family that when sin enters into this body, and it will and it has, that we need to move towards the broken. We need to be able to hear about their brokenness, their sin, and respond in grace. Now, trust might take a few minutes to, to follow. A few days, a few weeks, a few months, a few years even depending on the gravity of the sin. But we need to be able to handle it. We have to be able to handle it. You know why? Because we are just as guilty. Our sin nailed Jesus onto a cross. This is not easy. It's not. It's not. And we are to keep an eye and make sure that, that, that people who repent of sin, that they're, that they're living a life of, of faithfulness and repentance, bearing, you know, the, the fruits of repentance. I, I always forget the exact wording of that passage. Holding one another accountable, absolutely. But receiving them. Receiving them. We can't be scared of it. We can't think we're better than it. And let's be honest, we all think we're better than something. We do, we do, we think that. But the only reason why we can boast in anything is because of Jesus. That's our only boast. Paul says that. He says, I boast in nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the boast. That's the brag. That's the thing we celebrate. We don't say, Also, like all this other really righteous, good stuff I've done. No, our boasting is in Christ. And if our boasting is in Christ, then we will have eyes to see and we will not be put off by brokenness and sin. It might take a minute, and that's okay, but we need to continually go back to the table, right? Which is the reminder of the body and blood broken and shed for us. It's why we do it every week. Because there can't be a week that goes by that we don't recognize that we desperately need the grace and mercy and compassion of Almighty God. There can't be a week, there can't be a day that goes by. I said this last week. The gospel is not just for the newly converted. The gospel is for every single minute, day, month, year of our lives. We live by the gospel. We need to be freed from playing a game called Christianity so that we can have genuine encounters with Almighty God. Because those of us who remember that our sins are many and that not only are they many, but they are deep-seated and at times appalling and horrifying, the sort of forgiveness that covers that stuff 
That's the sort of forgiveness that produces a love for God and neighbor that will shake the foundations of all of creation. And to be honest, it's a love that I desire and long for with all of my heart, for myself and for all of us in this room. And that love begins and is cultivated when we throw ourselves daily onto the love and mercy of Christ Jesus. That's how it works. That's how it works. We have to be honest with God. We have to be honest with ourselves. We have to even be honest with one another. I'm not saying that you need to tell every single person in this room your deepest and darkest sinful thoughts and deeds. That's not what I'm saying. You should tell somebody, though. You should confess to somebody, an elder, a trusted friend, someone who can hold you accountable and walk with you and care for you. Someone needs to know your struggles because sin has a field day in the dark. Just does, and we all know it because all of you are thinking of those sins that, like, you haven't yet divulged. All of us are. Sin thrives in darkness. It's so funny. I read this passage, and now we're probably going a little longer than, than normal. I, I read this passage, and, and, and as I was thinking about it, I'm like, man, like, if this isn't a case of what, like, you know, like, Satan meant for evil, God used for good, like, I don't know what is, right? Like, this woman who was caught in adultery maybe like minutes before, let's, get, let's say a half hour, one of the most terrifying circumstances she probably ever found herself in, now she comes face to face with her Savior and she hears the words, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. Like, whoa! That's amazing, right? What Satan meant for evil, God said, nope. I'm going to save this one. And I'm going to lavish my love and my grace upon her. And I'm going to send her out to live in light of that love and grace so that the world can catch a glimpse of the sort of God I am. See, that's what happens when we allow ourselves to be fully searched out by God. He changes us. He makes us more and more like his son, and the world sees Jesus. Redeemer Fellowship, that is good news. That is good news. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you and we thank you for your grace. Your amazing grace, which you purchased through your son on the cross, Lord, the wondrous cross, Lord, that we're going to sing about in just a minute, Father. Oh, I thank you so much, Lord God. I thank you so much that you have loved us in the way that you love us. Lord, teach us to love like you love. Convict us and, and show us when we're not. Those times where we think much of ourselves, Lord God, help us to remember that our only boast is in your son, Jesus, Father. Please, God, I pray that for myself. I pray that for every single person in this room, for everyone in my own family, Lord God, all the children represented in this room, Lord God, I beg that of you, Lord God. And that today, Lord, would be the day of, of renewal for somebody, Lord God, whether it's salvation or whether it's 
confession and and needing to, to restart somewhere, Lord, I pray that today would be that day. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.